Welcome to New Season Ministry with Evangelist Jeremy Cook. We hope today's message will challenge, encourage, and uplift you in your walk with the Lord. Enjoy the message. If you have your Bibles, go with me back to the book of Acts chapter 11. The book of Acts chapter 11. Um, Want to continue tonight the thought on being a great church. Last time that we were together, we talked about being a great church. We've been looking at the characteristics of a great church. We've been looking at what... What I believe that Scripture shows are characteristics of what a, not just a good church, but what a great church looks like. We've all decided that we want to be this type of great church. Last time that we were together, we talked about that a great church looks like a church that is full of grace. We talked about what grace looks like in the church, what what a grace church looks like looks like. And so tonight I want us to continue that thought. Acts chapter 11, I want us to read these verses of Scripture again that we've been reading. Verses, let's start at verse number 19. It says, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists preaching the the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was on them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. The news of these things came to the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And when he came and he seen the grace of God, he was glad. And he encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. And so you may be seated in the house of God tonight. So I want to continue this thought tonight of what a great church looks looks like. Number one, we talked about the church being a church that is full of grace. Now tonight I want to talk to you about a church that is full of relationship. Because a true church or a great church is a church that is full of relationship. As a matter of fact, we let me just, again, you're probably getting tired of the statistics, but let me throw the statistics out to you, some more out to you at the start of this so that we can, so that we can lay a foundation of what I want us to talk about tonight. The first thing is, is we understand that within the first 11 minutes or so, 6 to 11 minutes, they say that a first-time visitor will come into your church. They will decide between the first 6 to 11 minutes whether or not if they will ever come back to your church. First time visitors. In the first 6 to 11 minutes they'll decide whether or not if they'll ever come back to your church. So that's before that they ever hear the preaching. 
That is before they ever hear the, the choir or the praise team or the worship leaders or anything like that sing. Uh, that is before anything of what we would consider notable of the activities going on in the church. Uh, they will decide before even the service starts. If they get there uh, you know, 10 or 15 minutes before the service starts, they will decide right away whether or not if they are ever going to come back. And so that begs a lot of questions on why, but we won't get into that necessarily tonight. But then they will say that second time attenders, those that come and they say, you know what, I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back again and I'm going to try that church out. I'm going I'm to try that church and the community out. And they'll say that those people will normally stay, will stay at that church for approximately the next four to six weeks. That in, in those next four to six weeks, if they cannot build anywhere between three to five notable relationships in that church, you'll lose them. Authentic relationships. So, Brother Jeremy, why do you say all of that? Because relationships are important. Relationships are necessary and integral for us to have any type of healthy life. If we are going to be everything that God has called us to be, everything about our life is built on relationship. Can I tell you this? God desires relationship. As a matter of fact, in the, very, in the very beginning, and you've heard me talk about this before, God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates all of this, but then on the sixth day, He grabs Himself a handful of dirt, He carves Him out the fashion of a man, He breathes into His nostrils the breath of life, and man becomes a living so he stands that man up, he calls him Adam, and in that moment, God has fellowship with man. Can I tell you this also, that even though that, that at that moment that everything was perfect, there was no sin in the world at that time. I mean, think about it. God would come down in the cool of the day and would begin to fellowship with His creation. I mean, can you think about how that was in the garden? That when Adam was walking in the garden, there was God that Himself that would come down and would walk with Him and would talk with Him. How many would like to experience a relationship like that? But even in the midst of something that God would call good, even though in the midst of something that God would deem was very good when He created man, can I tell you the very first crisis in the Bible is not the fact that Satan come into the garden to beguile Eve. That's not the first crisis we find in the Bible. The first crisis that we ever find in the Bible is even though man lived in perfect communion with God, even though that that, that, that relationship was strong, God looked at man and he had these words, it is not good for man to be alone. Why? Because even God in His infinite wisdom understood that relationship is important. See, can I just tell you something? I'm going to burst some bubbles in this teaching here. 
uh, growing up, I was always, I, I would get people, I, I would have people would stand up. I would hear people get up and stand up in church to testify and say, you know what? I don't need anybody else. All I need is Jesus. And as long as I just have Jesus, I don't need anybody else. I don't need any friends. I don't need anything like that. But can I tell you, that is a false ideology because God did not create man for simply that purpose. Relationship is both horizontal and vertical. Relationship. The Ten Commandments are all built on relationship. Did you know that? The Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai is all built on relationship. The the first four commandments deal with our relationship with God. The next six commandments deal with our relationship to each other. And so the totality of what God wants is relationship between Him and us and with each other. The Sermon on the Mount. Those three chapters, starting in Matthew chapter and starting in Matthew chapter five, six, and seven, is all about relationship. When he would build his church, when he would talk about upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It is all about relationship. Why? Because God desires his people to be people of relationship. And if we are always going about, if we are always going about with, 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 with walls that are built up, if we're always going about with boundaries where we don't want people to have access to us, we are actually going against the divine nature of God. Because God has built us uh, has built us for relationship. That is the reason why that if the vertical relationship is messed up, then more often than not, the horizontal relationship is messed up. And let me take it a step further. If the horizontal relationship is messed up, more more often than not, the the vertical relationship is messed up. Because here's the thing. You can't be right with God and wrong with people. And you can't be right with people and be wrong with God. Because the two connect with each other. The two are coincided with each other. That is the reason why, have you noticed this? This is not in my notes. And so I won't take too much time to dig into this. I'll I'll probably talk about this here just more in a moment. Do you know that a lot of the times we will come to church and we want the blessing. God, here's... My worship. God, here's my praise. God, here is my offering. But listen to the words of Jesus when Jesus would say, when you come to give your offering, when you come to give your gift, when you come to give your worship, when you come to give your sacrifice, and you remember that there is an issue between you and someone else. He says, this can't happen 
until this has been repaired. My goodness. So let me just go ahead and let me just preach to you right now. There's a lot of people that are not experiencing the blessings of God. There's a lot of people that are not experiencing the fullness of what God has for them is because one side of the coin is messed up. And when one side of the coin is messed up, everything gets turned upside down. Now, can you, you know, remember the saying... In our homes, and I've heard it, and, and, and I understand what people are trying to say because there may be some little bit of truth to that. There's, there's a saying that say, you know, if mama ain't happy, nobody's happy. Remember? Or, so, but let me take it a step further. Just in the home relationship, if husband and wife or at a crossroads in their relationship. Maybe, maybe they've had a, 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 a spat. Maybe they've had a disagreement. Maybe, as I like to call it, maybe they've had an intense moment of fellowship in the home. And if that doesn't get repaired, then all of a sudden, everything in the house becomes unkiltered. The children feel like they have to start walking on eggshells around mama and daddy. Because, because something is wrong. The harmony, the relationship has been messed up. That's the reason why Paul the Apostle would say, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Because at the end of the day, above everything else, God desires for the relationship to be whole. And if anybody had the desire for relationship, it was the church at Antioch. The church at Antioch was a relationship church. Because a great church is built on relationship. A great church. See, we have, the church in general has lost something along the way. It used to be, used to be we come in and we fellowship with each other. We didn't want to leave. We wanted to fellowship with one another. But now, can I just be completely honest with you? Here is what the culture of the American church looks like. Let's slide in 30 seconds before service starts. And let's slide out right when the last amen is spoken. Because... Because we've got things to do. And we feel like we've got... And so we compartmentalize our time. But in these days, the church wasn't just simply a Sunday thing. It was an everyday thing. Why? Because the Bible says that daily they went from house to house, breaking of bread... And we're not talking about the Lord's Supper. Some people interpret that to mean that what they did was that they were taking communion. No. How many knows that there's two words for church? We focus a lot on the ecclesia of the church. Which means simply the called out ones. We have been called out. But there is another Greek word that I would butcher if I would try to pronounce it. 
But it simply means fellowship. And so what this church and Acts wanted to do was that every day they wanted to be around each other. And so this church was built on relationship. They had a relationship with God the Father. They had a relationship with the Son, Jesus. They had a relationship with the Holy Spirit. Because here's the thing, you can't separate them. One God, eternally existing in three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. They had relationship with each other. They had relationship with non-believers. And they had relationship with the truth. So you may think, well, Pastor Jeremy, how can this be any how can this be spiritual? It is because it's scriptural. Because I want to focus on the time that we have left here tonight on two things. I want to focus on the church's relationship with truth. And I want to focus on the church's relationship with each other. So think about this. Are you ready? If you're taking notes, this is something good to write down. 43% of American Christians, only 43% of American Christians believe in absolute truth. I'm going to say that again. 43% of Americans believe in absolute truth. They believe, the majority of American Christians believe that truth is actually relative. They believe that truth is situational. That means that truth can be different depending on the circumstance that you're in. We have preachers that stand up and they will now tell you there are preachers right now that if I were to to give names, you would know exactly who I'm talking about, that would say that this book is outdated. I know, I, I, I know, I can tell you preachers that do not preach from this book, but they'll preach their thoughts and their opinions. But there is a relationship between us and truth. Can I prove it to you? John chapter 4. Jesus is having a conversation with the woman at the well. And they get into a theological debate or she tries to rope Jesus into a theological debate. John chapter 4. Jesus goes to the well. He is thirsty. This woman comes out to him at noontime, at the, at the hottest part of the day, says, and Jesus says, give me something to drink. She says, I got, you don't have anything to draw with. I'm a Samaritan, you're a Jew. Why are you talking to me? He's, he's, breaking, two, he's breaking two customs. One, it's a Jew talking to a Samaritan. And second, it's a man talking to a woman. But he tells her, says that, he says, if you would have asked of me the water that I'm wanting to give you, he says, I'm willing to give you, I could give you water that you would never thirst again. 
And if you read the story, it goes into the whole thing. Well, call your husband. Well, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, that's right. You've, you've been married four times and, or five times. And the one that you're with now is not even your husband. And she decides that she wants to try to rope him into a theological debate. And says, well, yeah, that's all well and good. But Jesus, um, you being a Jew and me being a Samaritan. The Samaritans say that here... Uh, on, on, on this mountain, we are to worship. But Jesus, on this, but the Jews say that it's in Jerusalem that we need to worship. Jesus wants to bypass the spiritual debate there and says there's coming a day, and now is, that neither in this mountain nor at Jerusalem are people going to worship. Because God is seeking those that will worship Him now. Here we go. It's twofold. In spirit and in truth. There is a partnership. There is a relationship that is there between truth and the people of God. Now as Pentecostals, we're great about worshiping in spirit. But can I tell you, one of the greatest dangers in the Pentecostal movement right now is we're not too good about worshiping in truth. Because for many of us, we have disengaged ourselves from truth. Why? Because to say something is true, we have to say that it is absolute. It is a law. When I was teaching science, I had to teach my students the difference between a theory... And a law. A theory can change based on the circumstances that are surrounding it. That's the reason we call it a theory. That's the reason why evolutionists call it the theory of evolution. But a law that is something that is concrete. It is something that no matter, no matter the situation, no matter the circumstances that are surrounding it, 100%, 100 times out of 100, it, you will always get the same results. That's the reason why we call it the law of gravity. Why? Because the law of gravity in its simplest form says what goes up has to come down. And if I threw something up in the air and it just hovered there, the first thing is I'm going to close my Bible, I'm going to go home, and I'm going to say, hey, y'all handle the rest of the service because something freaky is going on in this house tonight. <laughs> but the law of gravity tells us, it, and so what happens is it's absolute. The issue is, more often than not, we struggle with the absolutes. Because the absolutes challenge us. The absolutes require something of us. The absolutes demand something of us. That is the reason why we, for people who say, you know what, doctrine doesn't matter. Yes, it does. Doctrine is very important. Why? Because it is on the foundation of doctrine that truth is, is, is that truth is settled. Mm. And so we're good about worshiping in spirit. We're not too good about worshiping in truth. That's the reason why we get things that say, we get people that say, 
Well, everybody just worship God in their own way. Can I tell you that's a fallacy? Because we are not commanded to worship God in our own way. We are commanded to worship God in His way. Mm. David got into that trouble. Because David attempted to worship God the way he thought he should worship God. And he, and he, and he separated himself from truth. And it cost another man his life. I said, we'll, we'll, we'll get the dog and pony show. We'll put it up on the cart. We'll get our banners and we'll fly our banners. We'll bang our tambourines. But that's not how God said that the worship and the glory should be transported. And what did it do? It cost a man his life. You see, truth brings maturity. Truth requires us to grow up. This is a good teaching. Truth requires us to grow up. The writer of Hebrews would write in Hebrews chapter 5. And he would say. You're still learning the elementary principles. He says I want to give you meat. Because meat is what is given to mature people. But we're still down here at the first rung of the ladder. We're still on the shallow end of the pool. Because what truth does is truth requires a response of us to grow up. Right? Truth requires us to be mature. Truth also instructs. That's the reason why that he would, he would tell, that Paul would tell Titus in Titus chapter 2. He would lay the instructions on, on, on truth. If you read chapter 2, you will find out there, you will find out there it is in that place that he says, men, train the younger ones. Instruct the younger ones. Women, older women, train the new, train the younger women. How they should live, how they should act, how they, what, what the actual standard of truth is actually is. And then we come to that glorious verse that says for the grace because it is the grace of God that has appeared unto all men teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust that we should live soberly righteously in this present age. And he, and he winds up that chapter telling Titus. He says all of these things reprove, rebuke and exhort let no one despise you. Because the thing is, is we have despisers of the truth. Truth is not what I say it is. Truth is not what you say it is. Truth is what God has already settled in heaven. And we do not have to get around. We don't need to debate about it. We don't need to say things like, well, you know, I like to think that it's really like this. No, it's not like this. It is whatever God has said. And if God has settled it, then we need to, and whether we believe it or not, it is already settled. We have people that say, you know, well, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. No, God said it, and that settles it whether you believe it or not. And so, 
We have to be married in relationship with truth. So what about each other? What about each other in this? Look around the congregation. Look at each other. You know what's interesting? Every one of us is different. Everyone sitting in this room, everyone that's watching by Facebook, everybody that's going to listen to this teaching, we are all different. How boring would it be if we were all the same? I mean, we look, we look different. We act different. And somehow God brought us all together. From different backgrounds. From different types of statuses. I mean, I think about it like this. Pastor Greg Webb, who pastors the, the Stanton Christian Church, over there, him and I, when we talk, at some point in the conversation, we will get, we will be amazed at how God took two boys from Polk County, Florida, and moved them to Stanton to progress them in their ministry. And you look around this, God puts us together. We are a body. You know that your body is all about relationship. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is all about. And so we look at this, and have you ever thought to yourself, you look around at the people that are around you and go, why did God put us together? You ever thought about that? Well, I've got a few reasons why God allows diversity in the church for a relationship. Are you ready? Number one, I'm going to try to make these real fast. I've got just a few minutes left. Number one, He puts us together for these relationships in the church to learn love. Love is not an emotion. Love is the decision that you make. A lot of what we think is love, especially in the dating world, is not really love at all. It's lust. And there's a big difference. Because real love is a decision that you make. That, that's the reason why when we get married, the vow is for better or for worse, for richer or poor, in sickness and in health. You promise to love, honor, and cherish one another as long as you both shall live. And you say, I do. Because you're making a vow at that moment that regardless of what life throws your way, that person that is standing beside you, you're going to love them. You're going to honor them. You're going to cherish them. And so love then becomes a decision. That it doesn't change in, in our relationship because somebody looked at you crossways. 
Somebody said something to you that in the church that you didn't like. Because here was the thing. God made a decision to love you. God made a decision that even in the most undesirable of situations, there was nothing about you or I that, that deemed us to be loved. There was not, we could not stand up and say, hey, because of A, B, and C, God loved me. No, because God loved you at your very worst. And He made the decision, God the Father in His infinite wisdom made the decision to bankrupt heaven for you and I. And because of that, He said, if I love you, you ought to love one another. That means we love each other through the good times. That means we love each other through the bad times. That means that we love each other. That means that we love each other through all of our idiosyncrasies. There are things about me that drive my wife crazy. But in the midst of it all, she has decided to love me. Somebody has decided to love you. Somebody has decided. And the thing about it, in the church, we all come together. We all have, we all have our differences. We all have our, our uniquenesses. And the thing about it is, is that if God loved us, even in the midst of the bad, you think that it's possible that we could love each other on our bad days? Oh, that's good. Because that's Bible. Number two. He puts us together to forge forgiveness. Forgiveness is the toughest thing of all. It's tough to forgive. But you know what Jesus said about forgiveness? He would say in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 15, He says, if you don't forgive others, I won't forgive you. Now that's tough to think about. Do you know that Jesus, you know what Jesus' first work on the cross was? He said, Father, forgive me. And as I was reading that today, as I was preparing for this, something jumped out at me that I never saw, that I've never seen before in my life. Sister Steele, do you know that he said that more than once on the cross? Because... When you look it up in the original Greek, it is actually a progressive term that he uses over and over again while he is on that cross. So he doesn't just say it one time. He is actually asking the Father to forgive him multiple times through this. Oh, I'm getting ready to preach here. Why? Because if you remember, it wasn't too long ago that he would have a conversation with Simon Peter. And Simon Peter would come to him and say, Lord, how often should I forgive my brother that sins against me? He's talking about the church. My brother that sins against me. He's talking about the church. How often should I forgive them? Seven times? Jesus says, no, not seven times in a day, but 70 times. Seven. That is, that is, uh, that is hundreds and hundreds of times. And he says, it's not only that. But do you know that you really break it down? He says you forgive them 70 times 7 in a day for the same offense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
he says, if you don't learn to forgive, your heavenly Father doesn't forgive you. And we come to church, and we want God to heap blessings in our life, but we can't forgive people who have done us wrong. Now understand, now listen, forgiveness doesn't mean that what people did was okay. Forgiveness doesn't mean that, well, I forgive you, so, so take your next best shot again. But here's the thing. We're good about payback. But God is in the business of restoration. As brothers and sisters in Christ... He puts us together to learn forgiveness because here's the thing. Eventually, every one of us is going to have to find forgiveness. You may do something that I don't like. I may do something that you don't like. That requires the necessity of forgiveness. That means to cancel the debt. It doesn't mean it doesn't mean that oh well, it was okay that you did that, but what it means is, is I'm not going to hold that to your credit because God didn't hold it to our credit anymore. Yeah. That's right. So to forge forgiveness, let me move on here. Number three, to make muscles. The interesting thing about us coming together is that the Bible says that iron sharpens iron. And God's desire is to build us. I fly. I love flying. My family doesn't. My wife doesn't like flying. But if I stay seated in that seat long enough, you know what ends up happening? Everything becomes stiff. My knees and my joints start to lock up. So what ends up happening is, is that in order for growth to happen, stretching has to happen. If you're going to build muscle in your body, you have to stretch everything out. You know what the interesting, you know what, the, you know what we don't like about that? Is that stretching hurts. Mm-hmm. I, don't like, I, I don't like to stretch. Because sometimes that we're comfortable. But God puts us together for you to stretch me. And for me to stretch you. He said that He put us together to provoke one another unto love and to good works. That is, is that if you see something, in, see something in me that God is trying to pull out of me, you need to come by and assist. If I see something in you that God is trying to pull out, but I see sometimes we just sit there. It is our responsibility to come by to where you're at and say, hey brother, hey sister, let's pull that out. And guess what? It may be painful. Because we're not used to that. Because God is trying to increase us. But here's what I know. Strong churches are built by strong people. I'll say it again. Strong churches are built by strong people. Number four. To develop disciples. 
Discipleship is not something that is taught. Discipleship is something that is lived out. I, we don't, churches don't need another discipleship class. Churches need to see this lived out. Need to see it lived out. So he, he would talk about the older teaching the younger. Word plus walk equals disciples. The older ones that are here, you get ready to go make a house call to pray for somebody that's sick. Take somebody with you and show them what that looks like. Why? Because word plus walk equals disciples. Can I tell you how his disciples, how Jesus' disciples were made to pray? They heard him pray. God just didn't teach a series on prayer and say, well, you need to pray. But God modeled prayer to them in such a way that when it was all said and done, his disciples are coming to him and say, Lord, show us how to pray like you pray. And then number five. He puts us together for relationship to embrace eternity. Why? This is a dress rehearsal. Whether you like it or not, you're going to see me in heaven. And all of us, the greatest picture that I find of this is found in the book of Revelation where John would look and he would, he would see this. He would say, I saw a number that no man could number out of every, out of every kindred, tribe, and nation. There were, can I tell you, when we get to heaven, there's going to be Pentecostals. There's going to be Baptists. There's going to be Methodists. There's going to be Presbyterians. There's going to be Nazarenes. There's going to be whites. There's going to be blacks. There's going to be Asians. There's going to be all sorts of different races. Why? Because as a matter of fact, and go and read this, Ephesians chapter 3 verses 9 through 11 tell us that God's purpose for us is to show forth what real relationship is all about. And you say, well, Brother Jerry, what does that even mean? So let me just say this about eternity because we're satisfied a lot of times in our relationship being just what we are. My four and no more. Don't ask me to grow. Don't ask me to stretch. Don't ask me to do anything above what I am comfortable of doing. Can I tell you the thing that breaks my heart is still in America right now, in the American church, the most segregated day of the week is Sunday. That should never be. 
I'm going to stand flat-footed right here unequivocally and say I do not believe in a white church. I do not believe in a black church. I do not believe in a Hispanic church. I believe in the church. And when we've come to the place, and I want to let me just say this. I know we're on Facebook. It falls on every. It falls at the feet of every church that believes that. I don't care if your church is predominantly white. If your church is predominantly white, then you're at fault. If your church is predominantly black, you're at fault. If your church is predominantly Hispanic, and, and the only people that need to come to your church is Hispanics, then you're at fault. Amen. And here's the thing. This is a dress rehearsal for eternity. And he puts us together in relationships, Brother Johnny, to build, to get us ready for this. Amen. Because when we get on the other side, we're going to have to look each other while the ages roll on. And here's, in my last 30 seconds that I have in this, I want to say this. A victorious church is a church that is built on relationship. Here's reality is. Here's the reality of this. I need you. We need each other. Amen. Brother Johnny, I can't do what I do if it wasn't for relationship. Amen. There was a period of time in my life that I didn't want to be around people. I am naturally, by nature, an introvert. I like being in my house. I don't like being, if, if I'm not careful, and I have to watch myself, I get around crowds of people, and I just start, I'll start getting irritated. Because I don't, I don't like all the, I don't like all the commotion. I don't like, you know, I don't like being in a room where I can hear thirty-five conversations going on at one time. That drives me absolutely crazy. Amen. But if I'm not careful, I will begin to isolate myself, and then I become the guy that nobody wants to be around. And people start looking at me and going, well, that guy, he's not a nice person. He's mean. And what does that do? That develop, that severs relationships. Can I tell you the most unhappiest people in the world are people who do not have relationships developed. We need each other. Yes. We need the Lord. Yeah. And together you build a church that can not be defeated. Right. Amen. Amen. Stand with me. We hope you enjoyed today's message by Evangelist Jeremy Cook. If you would like more information regarding New Season Ministry, to schedule Jeremy to minister at your event, or to support the ministry with a love gift, please contact us at 859-404-4007.
or you may email him at pastorjeremycook at gmail.com. God bless, and we will see you next time on New Season Ministry. Thank you.